Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul Jay. This is The Real News Network, and we're continuing our discussion with Daniel Ellsberg. Thanks for joining us again. Good to be here. If there was a president elected, and if there, for example, in the Democratic Party, enough uh, people elected to Congress who are breaking from the kind of militarist position, what would you recommend? What, what does a plan look like? Well, first of all, realize neither party uh, has promised any departure from our reliance on the military-industrial complex uh, since McGovern, in effect. And um, uh, he was uh, the only one, I think, who, and his defeat uh, taught many Democratic politicians they could not run for office with uh, that kind of burden of dispossessing, even temporarily, the workers of Grumman, Northrop, and General Dynamics, and Lockheed, and and uh, the shipbuilders in uh, Connecticut and so forth, and Groton. So it would take a different political economy, or it would take a different movement, impressing our Congress, and basically a different kind of Democrat from any we've seen. Our system is a two-party system, which people can find by looking at Wikipedia, or, uh, the web in general, and asking the question, what is a two-party system? And the answer to that is one that most people don't realize. It's based uh, not just on the strength of the existing two main parties, but on the fact that we have a system of single-member constituencies, winner-take-all, not first-past-the-post. These are terms that can be quickly found out if you look them up. It's a political system that makes it extremely unlikely that a third party will actually succeed, and is why no party has succeeded in, since. 1860, when the Democrats were split on the issue of slavery. By the way, if there was a third party on the right, I'd be all for that, because that would enable a really progressive Democrat to be nominated, I think, and actually to win. But uh, without that, a requirement, I think, uh, as early as this year, in 2018, is a Democratic House and or Senate, preferably both, uh, Senate is, is more difficult, uh, is a requirement, but very far from sufficient to make any of these changes. In the past, the Democrats have not been willing to do that, and almost no Democratic candidate, even the most progressive of them, has really addressed the idea of conversion, which is the prerequisite for any of the other changes on climate and health and education. That, Conver uh, conversion of military what? production we have to, change to green, the, sustainable production. Suspending has to change away from uh, the ability to destroy life on Earth, primarily. And that without either total disarmament. Uh, I am not a total pacifist and never have been, uh, although it's very hard, be very hard put to find a conflict since the Second World War, it's a long time ago, where I thought that it was necessary or worthwhile uh, for the U.S. to be engaged. And um, uh, I used to make an exception for Korea. More study on that has recently has uh, changed my mind on that. But I think, in fact, for the Russians, for the British, ultimately for the Americans, to oppose Nazi Germany under Hitler and his ambitions and his recklessness was justified. That is my strong opinion. But uh, without that, and without giving any other country a monopoly of nuclear weapons, let's say 
by the U.S. totally disarming nuclear weapons, I don't think it would serve world peace normally to give adequately to give Russia a monopoly of nuclear weapons. Not that they would immediately start throwing them around by any means, but that it would embolden them in ways that would not be uh, good for world peace or ultimately avoiding nuclear war. But that's not the issue. The issue is whether we continue to sustain a doomsday machine of the kind we have, whether we continue to modernize it with the B-51, Mod 12 uh, bombs and so many others, uh, on both sides, by the way, or whether we can move away from that. Doomsday can be made impossible and not actually uh, in some utopian way that we've never seen in the world, uh, even in the nuclear age. China went for decades after their first explosion in 64, when I was in the Pentagon, not building a large nuclear force. For decades, they had only a dozen or so ICBMs against the United States, at a time when we could have launched thousands of weapons against China. Now, how did they rationalize that? At first, we said, well, they can't afford to. They're too poor. But within 20 years, certainly 30 years ago, 20 years, that didn't work. They obviously could match, achieve parity, as they say, with the U.S. or Russia. They absolutely could. They've chosen not to spend money in ways that threaten doomsday and threaten their own deterrence by making us fear they're about to disarm us. China has never pretended to have the capability to disarm a major adversary. They don't, even though they have by two By disarm, rivals, you mean first strike. By a first strike. They don't have that capability. They have perhaps 300 warheads now, mostly tactical, uh, against Russia in their area, but uh, many, uh, several dozen strategic warheads, more than they need, enough to cause nuclear winter, but less than 10% of what we have. Uh, the China, in other words, has followed a relatively sane policy in the nuclear era, I would say, if any nuclear policy can be sane. And I would say, actually, they have. They bought themselves a good deal of deterrence with a handful of weapons capability and didn't go beyond that. We could, uh, we could, the world would be much safer, we would be safer if we had no more weapons than the Chinese. Likewise, the Russians, and that would be true whether the Russians imitated that or not. The same would be true for the Russians. They would be safer from a false alarm on our side, let's say, against a Russian supposedly surprise attack. If they dismantled <coughs> their ability for a surprise attack. And this underlying idea that the Russian Soviet Union is trying to take over the world, it seems to me it's just as true about modern-day Russia is also not trying to take over the world. There's no, no. reason to think Russia would, would not comply in such a scenario. Yes. As you say that, you know, I don't think the U.S. is trying to take over the world by military means, although our military spending is so vastly greater no, I wasn't than saying, the combination. I wasn't saying I don't that. think anybody is. But certainly Russia, uh, it would be absurd to say that that's uh, what they're trying to do. So, so why don't they move to that? It's, it's the only sane move. Well, all three. I mean, China's already in a relatively modest position. One would think instead of developing new hypersonic planes and new bombs, 
the same course is there, a modest I amount. The, I can only guess for much the same reasons we do it. On the one hand, uh, as Gorbachev has indicated, as I say to a friend of mine, uh, Cynthia Lazarov, in Russia, they have their profit motive over there, which goes again. They're supporters of Putin. Their oligarchs are not all drug dealers. Some of them are arms makers, and uh, as over here. Uh, second, the idea of being a great power has domestic politics implications and implications in negotiations in general, status, prestige. Uh, the only reason, by the way, for the UK or France to be, have nuclear weapons at this time, to be in the nuclear club, uh, to be a shadow at least of their former imperial selves, to be one of the big boys. Um, uh, in, um, there's, in terms of how many weapons are actually needed for the deterrence of nuclear attack, which I think is not an entirely, is not an illusory notion altogether, uh, what does it take? Dr. Herbert York, a physicist who was the first director of Livermore Nuclear Weapons Design Laboratory, one of our two laboratories, Los Alamos, and which produced the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs, and Livermore. He was the first director of Livermore, which was set up in particular as the home of Edward Teller and to press H-bomb development. He said in a meeting at Livermore later, years later, after he'd been head of the research and engineering in the Defense Department and major, a major arms negotiator for several, for several administrations, asked the question, how many weapons are needed to deter nuclear attack from an enemy rational enough to be deterred, to be influenced? He said, one or 10, he said, perhaps 100, not more than that, he said, but closer to 10, sorry, closer to one than 100, maybe like 49. Um, he went at it from one other point of view, too. He said, what is the largest amount of destruction that we think one man or one nation should be able to inflict in a short period of time on another, on the world? He said, supposing we take World War II as an upper limit there, 60 million dead, in a short time. He said, that would take about 100 weapons. Largest, maybe 200, but more likely 100 weapons. So again, he says, one to 10 to 100 weapons. Now, of the nine nuclear states, North Korea is the only one who's clearly below that level. We, of course, are many more, you know, 10 times uh, more than that. And uh, <coughs> I would say that no nation in the world can actually justify having as many weapons as the least of them, uh, putting aside North Korea. What is the rationale, and, and does it play any real deterrent for Israel to have nuclear weapons? Yeah, well, Israel's nuclear weapons are only first-use weapons. Their adversaries have no nuclear weapons. So like us in the late 40s, uh, their plans are only first use, first strike, not for responding uh, to nuclear weapons. Still, they are faced with, as NATO felt it was faced, by large uh, adversarial forces, if you non-nuclear, non if you add them all together, if you put them together, uh, they have relied on their first use threat. 
They're said to have some 80 weapons. Now, what would they do with 80 weapons? Uh, actually, uh, a better figure is, I've seen other estimates, very likely closer to 200. But whether it's 80 or 200, how can anyone, how can Israel justify having that many? That's 80. But we have, you know, 1,500 on alert, thermonuclear uh, weapons. The, uh, how about when you go above Israel, then, you get in the level of 100, 140 or so, when you look at Pakistan, India, those are atomic weapons, fission weapons. Uh, or uh, Britain and France either uh, have in the, or in the order of 100 to 200. None of these countries could really justify in hearings, rational hearings, having that many, as a matter of fact. And we come back to it, have, uh, you know, so 10, why does Israel more than have 10 so times more. Once, probably, I don't know the answer, actually, but for reasons like ours, probably a lot of theirs, by the way, they think of as tactical weapons. Many of them may be neutron bombs that would be used against armies in the desert. I doubt it. They wouldn't need that many. <laughs> they wouldn't need 10 against cities. Uh, but whatever. there would but, be nothing left of Israel after blowing no, up no, all no. these bombs. Um, the, and the fallout. Whether the enemy, by fallout, whether the enemy has nuclear weapons or not, there wouldn't be anything much of an Israel left. Sam Cohen, the father of the neutron bomb, was convinced that Israel had built his neutron bombs, that they had seen the advantage of those, which are weapons, by the way, which if they're exploded at a high altitude, don't cause a lot of, if any, fallout, and actually don't destroy structures. They penetrate through structures or tanks and they kill the, the living organisms inside, the humans. Uh, the communists at that time called that a capitalist weapon. It preserved property and killed only humans. But the Soviets, like Reagan, after President Carter, almost surely did build neutron bombs uh, and test them. So uh, with a lot of those, you could think of those as tactical weapons in the desert. They are, they are faced in the, in the desert. Uh, I don't know their planning, uh, be uh, worth knowing. In the case of India and Pakistan, for example, they have so far only fission weapons. A hundred of those, 50 each in a war against cities in the country, would cause the absorption of about 7% of the sunlight, not nuclear winter, which uh, US and Russia would absorb perhaps 20%, uh, 70% of the sunlight, and starve everyone. The India-Pakistan would cut sunlight by 7%, shortening harvest, killing harvest, depending on the season, and probably caused by starvation 2 billion deaths of the most ill-nourished people in the world. That's calculation of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, Ira Helfand and others, have calculated that. Something between 1 and 2 billion one-third of the Earth's population. If, however, testing resumes, as the Republicans for a long time have been proposing uh, should be, uh, should happen, as a matter of fact, and Russian labs are said to be uh, anxious to resume testing, if testing resumed, India and Pakistan would quickly achieve H-bombs. They're on the verge of it now. North Korea, again, has claimed it has tested an H-bomb, may or may not, but certainly would need more tests to have an operational work H-bomb. That would give them a full nuclear winter capability. 
So a war between India and Pakistan wouldn't kill only one-third of the Earth's populations, but three-thirds, like ours. Uh, the in-between nations, uh, the UK, France, uh, China, and the others, perhaps may or may not be able to uh, get a full nuclear winter. No, but they can starve if they launch their forces as they plan, including cities like Moscow and other capital cities, many other cities with command and control. They would reflect sunlight between 1 billion and 7 billion, probably somewhere in between. There's no excuse. These are, I say, evil uh, outcomes, certainly. And plans that risk them or prepare for them have their uses, but at the risk of causing this effect, uh, which I would say is absolutely unconscionable, as well as a vast diversion of the world's resources that are needed otherwise. Daniel Ellsberg ends his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, with this. Is it simply quixotic to hope to preserve human civilization from either the effects of burning fossil fuels or preparing for nuclear war? As Martin Luther King Jr. warned us one year to the day before his death, there is such a thing as being too late. In challenging us on April 4, 1967, to recognize, quote, the fierce urgency of now, end quote, he was speaking of the, quote, madness of Vietnam, end quote. But he also alluded on the same occasion to nuclear weapons and to the even larger madness that has been the subject of this book. Quote, we still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation, end quote. MLK went on, we must move past indecision to action. If we do not act, we shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter, but beautiful, struggle for a new world. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us on Reality Asserts Itself. Um, one hopes this is not a reality that is going to assert itself on the Real News Network.